Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Avast me hearties, avast me hearties. <laughs> yeah, hello there, everyone. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and of course, James Holland. And if you hear any background noise, that's because we are in a very, very, very busy dockyard, aren't we? Yep, Jim? we're out fresco this morning at the historic dockyard at Portsmouth. Yeah, in the Portsmouth Naval Base Property Trust, because this is one of those places like a sort of mosaic of different jostling and competing uh, historic ventures because there's Victory over there there's Mary Rose beyond yeah. that Warrior but just behind us Warrior just behind us but we are well but it's Boathouse 4 yep with its um, zigzag roof yeah but it's amazing we've just yeah. walked through that I mean that's just something that nor- normal mortals don't go through no and all these historic aircraft we um, aircraft aircraft oh, oh no. 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 no no rewind rewind no. <laughs> <laughs> historic vessels vessels from the senior service and, and yeah. elsewhere. And we've just seen a, a little... Well, Steve's here. Come on, Steve. Steve Fisher, Welcome, our old Steve. pal. Morning, gents. Morning. Uh, nice to... Uh, uh, also, we had that uh, podcasting thing, Steve and I, earlier, where we, we realised we haven't met. <laughs> we've done podcasting. He's slightly smaller than I thought he was. Oh. <laughs> well, no, this is the weird you're, thing. You're slightly taller than I well, imagined, you actually. You're comparable with James, which I didn't really yeah, expect. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're big lads. We're both, but this is the strange thing about this Zoom world we've lived in the last 18 months, is now I'm at, we're actually clapping eyes on each other for real. Yeah, it's it, a, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Let me just, let me just <laughs> it make is that better. Clear. Let's, let's make that absolutely, <laughs> yeah, absolutely Glad to better. hear that. But Stephen, tell, us, tell the listener where we are and what, what we're here to do. So we're on the pontoons behind Boathouse 4 at Portsmouth Naval Base Property Trust's main sort of boat building college um, inside Portsmouth Historic Dockyard. Uh, and these pontoons hold the small sort of heritage flotilla that PNBBT operate, which includes a couple of historic vessels from the Second World War, motor gunboat 81, yeah. um, high-speed launch 102, an RAF rescue launch, and MASB 27, a motor anti-submarine boat. Um, but the one that we're looking at today is F8. Uh, yep. which is a post-war, so we're going slightly out of the Second World War, yeah. a little bit, but don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll loop it all back in, um, which is actually a Falklands War veteran. Um, and she is an evolution of the Second World War landing craft assault operated by the Royal Navy. Uh, and she is an absolutely fantastic little boat, and she's fully operational, so we can actually go out into the harbour. In yes, fantastic. Hey. But I've, I've got to say, I mean, yeah, amazing, brilliant, but... but, but all the other stuff I've already seen this morning has been incredible. Well, you know, the little is it, would you call that a launch? There was a, there's a, an amazingly sleek looking, very sexy uh, <laughs> uh, launch that actually destroyed a Russian cruiser in the Civil War in 1919. Yeah, the Commander One of VC. You know, you're just sitting there looking at all this incredible history. Well, another one, another vessel from the Boxer Rebellion. I mean, crikey. Well, I was thinking I was going to ask Stephen because you met, you said aircraft there as a sort of Freudian slip because we have been and seen lots of restored planes we went up in that restored mustang only a couple of months ago yep is this must be easier than restoring it not easier but like a more straightforward than restoring aircraft because you've not got to you know you, you rebuild a mustang kind of from scratch don't you and or is or is it just as big a headache? I would say they both present their own challenges. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, an important yeah. one about these is they need to be able to float again. Um, yeah, that's the and, yeah, yeah. and that sounds easy and obvious enough. But when you're talking about heritage boats, um, you need to preserve as much fabric as possible um, rather than replace every single plank. And that can be challenging if you want it to actually be an operational boat again. Yeah. Then you also have to think about health and safety and those sorts of things. You can't use the original sort of petrol engines that would have been used in wartime because they're just mentally dangerous. So you go for diesels. So there's there's all sorts of um, issues that you need to consider to make these boats actually seaworthy and, and restore them yeah. again. So I, I'd say they're not necessarily any easier than an aircraft. Um, they're just different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the main difference is... You can only get one other person in a Mustang, can't you? Yeah. Whereas, I mean, how many people can? Because the, the, I mean, the thing is, is on your on your literature, it says these are cleared for passenger um, uh, use. So, I mean, this is one of the things that's this collection is something that people can experience 
more directly perhaps than the aircraft. You know, the aircraft can whiz overhead. You can you can go out and in, into the into the sound in this. Can't can't yes. into the Solent. So these these boats are operational, and amongst the collection, uh, high speed launch one hundred and two and F eight are both cleared to take passengers out. Um, yeah. So they can they can take people out into the water. I mean, this F eight would have carried thirty to thirty five fully armed troops when it was yeah. operational. We don't need that now. So it takes no. slightly smaller groups um, with plenty of space. Great thing about a landing craft is it's also wheelchair accessible. Um, of course, which some of the other boats aren't <laughs> quite as ramp. easy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is this is a way for people to actually experience wartime heritage, not just wartime, yeah, historic yeah. naval vessels, uh, and actually be able to enjoy them. And like you say, you two don't have to draw lots or argue over the backseat of a Mustang this time because you can both fit on it. Well, should we stop? enough of this yakking yeah 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 let's get in the let's get aboard not to get in it you don't get in a boat do you get you get, you get on board you, you board a boat you board a boat and it's a boat isn't it it's not a ship it's definitely not a ship well, um, we, we could argue over whether it's a craft or a boat but it's oh, definitely okay, no, not great, a ship no because i know you know maritime people they get funny about boat ship but to throw <laughs> craft into the mix is uh, excellent yeah, no, <laughs> the all-round safe word is vessel vessel Right, okay. Well, okay. should we board the vessel? vessel? Yeah, we let's board, board the, the landing vessel, vessel craft yeah. boat. <laughs> right, well, we're underway. It's, it's, it's got good vibrations. I mean, it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> well, would the MOD uh, knock it back now for being too vibrating? That's the... Uh, I is don't it know, like it Ajax? is. I mean, just imagine being in this and having to sort of, you know... Now, normally... On a swell. Wouldn't you... You'd board this from a larger, a larger ship, wouldn't you? Uh, so, F-8 is one of this sort of later generation of landing craft that they... They're designed to use with a, a larger ship called a landing platform dock, which is right. actually an evolution of the landing ship dock, which yeah. was a, a British concept and design in the Second World War that was then built by the Americans. It's not vibrating now. No, no. that's it. We're, we're out of manoeuvring. It's only when we're, we're trying to get out of the, the dock area. So all right, it'll be a little bit quieter in a moment. But you know, it's all authentic. This is the thing. More nimble than I thought. Well, what you've got to remember is this is incredibly shallow draft, and we're not adding much weight to it. Uh, right. It has to be shallow draft so it can get onto a beach. So it, it'll skim around on the surface. Of course, the engines aren't powerful enough for us to, to get up on the plane like, like Motor Gunboat 81 just there, which is designed to, to actually plane across the water. But right. Same level of draft in that there's, there's hardly any draft at all. So. But with 35 uh, fully equipped infantrymen or whatever, yeah. um, she's going to draw a bit more, isn't she? She will, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what you need a bit more grunt for as well, right? Yeah, so you can you can nudge that in onto the beach as well, because you need to be able to drive it right up on the beach so that the infantry can get out without getting their feet wet, yeah, basically. Yeah. Which And happens. then put it into reverse and get off the beach. Exactly, yeah. And so for that, all landing craft, one of the, the key features, which is actually behind the coxswain's position here, but you have the kedge anchor, which is the anchor yeah. that you drop off the stern as you go onto the beach. Um, and then you winch back, back, back up, up the exactly. chain. Right, you okay. winch yourself back off, you pull yourself off using the anchor as this sort of standpoint. But Steve, I, I, you know, one of the things that strikes me is it's not very, it's not very deep. I, I always kind of thought that, you know, it's almost up to your head. Oh, you mean up, up, up for, for us? For us, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you'd, you'd feel pretty yes, vulnerable going into war I with mean, this, wouldn't you? you we're, so we're, to describe that, we're, to, the, to the elements we're exposed from sort of, uh, our chests up, aren't we? Yeah. And our yeah. heads are well clear. So yeah. you're exposed not just to the elements, but uh, and after all, d d not just to fixate on D-Day, but the weather wasn't good, was it? So they're they're out in the in the rain and the wind. Yeah. Well, and is this very different from a from a wartime LCV? Well, no, or, not or really. So this is where this this design comes into its own. So F8 is a uh, probably 1960 thereabouts vessel, um, yeah. and she's. She's classed as an LCVP, a landing craft vehicle personnel. Now, everyone thinks of that as the Higgins boat, the US built boat, but yeah, LCVP mistake, is just a class or a classification. Right. So we were building our own LCVPs as well, essentially, but they were all just then classed as that type later on. Um, so F8 is an evolution of our own Second World War landing craft, the very famous landing craft assault. And that was built, well, it was designed in 1938. Um, so before the war started, they've already thought, the they're already thinking started. ahead that we might need to do well, this. Exactly. So we had a, an organisation called the uh, Inter-Service Training and Development Centre, which was founded in 1938. They were based just on the other side of Portsea Island at Fort Cumberland. 
Um, and they were this, this chance, basically, if you like, a forerunner of combined operations. So their task was to look at ways in which the free services can coordinate and cooperate uh, to develop things like landing craft. Yep. And so one of their big achievements was to start commissioning landing craft designs and one of those was the LCA. They put out a tender for a small boat capable of carrying a platoon of infantry and they contacted a, a private boat builder, Fleming Boats, who designed um, life vessels, uh, lifeboats and that sort of thing. And they came back with a design that wasn't dissimilar to their lifeboat designs. It wasn't quite ideal though. It was made of aluminium. And if right. you think the engines are noisy now and there's a bit of vibration, an aluminium boat is going to make an absolute yeah. racket, which isn't yeah. what you want for a, an offensive or commando landing. Um, so the Admiralty said, no, we need you to contact a few other boat builders. Fornicroft responded. Fornicroft, very famous boat builder. They built the coastal motorboat you referred to earlier. And they uh, turned around the design. Their, their chief designer, Kenneth Barnaby, turned around the design in 48 hours. So they built both of these boats, the Fleming boat and the Fornicroft boat. They tested them again just on the other side of Portsea Island, over on Hailing Island. Um, and the, the Fornicroft boat was essentially the winner. It needed a bit of uh, changing of the design, they widened the ramp a bit, that kind of thing, but I, it was the more ideal boat. It wasn't made of aluminium, it was made of mahogany, but you could put armour plating on the side, which was incredibly important. So that became our landing craft assault, which is but but the very my, famous my, my, Second World War landing craft. Sorry Steve, but, 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 right. but my point is, is in 1938, they're thinking we might have to do amphibious assaults at some point, so we need yeah. something to be able to do this. Exactly that. But, um, but is that blue sky thinking, or is that... Um, because because after all, no one's expecting the Second World War to go the way it does. Uh, mm. the, you know, May 1940 and the need to reconquer Europe isn't isn't on anyone's um, so shopping list. In 1938, it? we really had no amphibious capability. We were still landing people from ships' boats. Right. And once you get onto a beach, that's that's not very effective. Um, so so it's basically life craft and things like you know. Yeah yeah. Life boats it's, that you've got. Ships' boats, ships' tenders, that sort of thing. And you know they're not designed lighters. for landing. Are they lighters. Lighters. Yeah. Um, cutters. Whalers. Whalers, yeah, Vessel those sorts of vessels. vessels. Craft. <laughs> um, in 1937, the Second Sino-Japanese War breaks out. Now, the naval representative on the uh, Inter-Service Training and Development Centre was Captain Loban Mond, who you won't recognise the name of, but he was the skipper of Ark Royal during the Bismarck Battle, and right, he was the right. skipper when it sank, unfortunately, the Ark Royal sank. Yeah. Um, but at this time, in 1938, he's the naval representative on the IT into training service, ITSTD, whatever. Um, and he had observed some of the Japanese amphibious operations at Shanghai. So he was well aware of their capability and he sort of knew this is the sort of vessel that we need if we're ever going to need to conduct amphibious operations. And, you know, with war around the world, with Britain's empire, just because we weren't at war in Europe yet, it doesn't mean that we're not yeah. going to need something at some stage. So, so they start developing these designs. And really, the Inter-Service Training Development Centre um, is, is the forerunner of combined operations. If well, so the, I mean, in a way, I mean, what a landing craft also explicitly represents it, uh, is Army and Navy having to to cooperate cooperate yeah. and meet each other's needs exactly and yeah. capabilities so i mean it's interesting it's a platoon so what what the, what what hasn't happened is they've gone well i'm sorry you're gonna have to it can only take 20 men so you're gonna have to break your platoons up which would yep. which would disrupt how the army operates so it, immediately it's simple it's being sympathetic yeah to what the passengers need exactly um, and that's where this combined arms approach the army say well we need it to carry this as a minimum formation so that's what the, the, the Royal Navy start looking men, for. Yeah. So that's how many they could carry, and they, they did it admirably. So it could carry uh, a platoon of men and two engineers, usually. Uh, you know, two attached infantry men of, of another um, unit. And, and, uh, to, I mean, we'll come back to it, but to scroll forward, when this is being built in the late 50s for the early 60s, is that in the same spirit that, who knows, we may need amphibious kit? Because after all, Suez is just has basically just happened. Yeah. And that, that that's a that's a full on combined operations. Might need it in well, Malaya. You might you see, need it in Malaya, you might need it anywhere. Suez was the impetus for this type of vessel. So right. they start looking at a landing craft assault Mark II post war in the very early nineteen fifties. And they actually designed one. Um, and the landing craft assault Mark II is this basically. They just right. change the designation because it's got a bigger ramp, it can take a vehicle. So rather than a landing craft assault, they say, well, it's a landing craft vehicle personnel because it can do both. So it, it becomes the LCVP Mark II. So you can get a Land Rover in it, right? Exactly. But, but, but in what way is this different to, so say I'm in an LCA 
uh, you know, and I'm landing on Sword Beach mm. or in Sicily or wherever or Salerno, yep. what's different? So not a huge amount. The, the, this is very similar to the, the original wartime LCA. What's different is you couldn't get a vehicle into the LCA. So it was purely infantry. So the coxswain's position, Diggory, our skipper, is stood at the back now in yep. the, the armoured coxswain's position. That was essentially at the bow instead, where David has stood. And right in front of the ramp, you had two watertight doors and then the, the ramp, which wasn't watertight. And that's your front. There's also a separate section on the, the port side where you could fit a machine gun if you needed to. Right. So it's a narrow entrance. You can only get two men off side by side. And the Higgins boat has it at the back, doesn't it? Has a coxswain at the back. It does, it? yes. Um, but again, their design evolved from a, a separate boat as well. But th this was a separate evolutionary tree, if you like. This right. is this is that's purely from the Everglades, isn't it? And, exactly and, the and the, um, in, the thingy boat that I've forgotten the name of. Louisiana. Yeah, um, the Eureka boat. That's it. Yeah. So they're two separate families, if you like. But otherwise, there's many similarities with this. So a couple of key features of the LCA, which are replicated on here, are you could fit benches. And you see these sockets here. This is so yeah. you can actually fit three runs of benches down the boat. That's and they have that in the war? Crucial. Exactly. The LCA had seating positions. So you see photos of troops lined up and oh, they're, so they're all sat that, down that, on benches. Right. And that's why they seem lower in the... Exactly. And why I feel so high. Exactly. Because you're basically... Your arrangement here is to sit down the sides. These are slightly narrower than they were on the LCA because, of course, you want to get a vehicle in. But these covers over the side came almost over to about here. So that gives you a lot of shelter for your troops. Right. So compare this with the US LCVP, the Higgins boat. On that, they're stood up. They don't have as good a sides. They don't have as good coverage. They're getting soaked by the spray. In the LCA, you've sat on benches and you're covered um, on you know on both on both sides, so there's far less spray. You're not getting as wet. That makes the LCA significantly more comfortable for the troops. And if you're going to sail eight miles into Normandy beaches in one of these in Force Four, you know fairly rough seas, yeah. which is going to be the more comfortable boat? The one that you're stood up in. You see throwing up. But you see, <laughs> here's a problem. Here's one of the things, Stephen. Is I think most people's impressions of a landing craft will have come from Saving Private Ryan. Where you're all standing together, where, where all together. Sta come directly from that film. Well, interestingly enough, that film is filmed on sister vessel to F8. That right. was filmed on a Royal Navy LCVP, two of them that were restored for the film. They put slightly higher combing on the sides just to make it look a little bit like an LCM. Um, and it sort of does. But yeah, Curiously enough, <laughs> that was actually right. filmed on one of these right, vessels. Right, right, right. So you do get a more of an idea that this hasn't got quite the same protective qualities as the original wartime right. LCA. So that's the. But I mean, there you go. You've got to cast that from your mind. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, driving right, private Ryan. Yes, but, Jim. It, but, yeah. but whatever just, you can do. But it's it's impossible to, isn't it? Because whenever you think about that, that's what you're thinking about, aren't you? Yeah. Now always. Um, uh, what is it? Armor plate? Is it the plat? Is yep. it the? Is it the? Plastic armor from the from the Second World War. Plastic armor, that concrete with, you know. I think it's steel plate. Steel um, plate. They, they tested the armor. They they found the best sort of thinnest armor they could get that would handle bullets and ricochets off the water, uh, and they could fit that in place of the mahogany down the sides of the boat. On this one, being 50s, 60s build, I'm not exactly sure what the yeah. armor is made of, but I think it's steel plate. Um, is that right, Dave? Yeah. Are we doing an amphibious assault? Uh, yeah, so I, I asked Diggory if he could take us somewhere, um, which I, I thought somewhere interesting to talk about so we can go back to the Second World War a bit more easily. Also, I wanted to pick up on something that Al Murray said at the um, <laughs> Chalk Valley History Festival. Oh, yeah. Which I didn't, I didn't want to rush down the hill at the time and, and shout at you, so I thought I'd save it until we're out here. ominous. Excellent. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we're going into a D-Day embarkation hard. Right. Oh, so that's if you want to have good. a look across the bow. Brilliant then we are coming up to a Second World War site that is genuinely associated with D-Day. That's um, brilliant. This is called Hardway. So this, this was a, a key, if you like, before the war. It's a boat launching place. But in 1943, they started improving it to turn it into an LST hard, a landing ship tank yeah. hard. It's completed in April 1944. And so this was a place to embark troops onto the larger landing ship tanks. Yeah. Um, but it has all the hallmarks of a traditional World War II era second world war embarkation hard and this is what i wanted to talk to you yeah about. yeah go on chalk valley history festival when you're you're doing your top five 
yeah, yeah. British successes and your bottom five British successes. And we mentioned D-Day. Yeah. And James casually steps in and, you know, it was launched from Britain. You know, successful. And you said, well, that's just incidental, isn't it? You know, he's not going to launch it from Iceland. One of the key <laughs> things about D-Day is that this country was so well prepared to launch it. Yeah. So it's not just the construction of these embarkation hards, of which they built 78. Yeah. So at one, any one time, these 78 hards could accommodate over 200 vessels. Yeah. It's all of the infrastructure improvements that they put in place behind that to support yeah. the embarkation yeah, of yeah. troops. So as well as the embarkation hard, um, behind that, you've also got road improvements road widening, road strengthening, laybys yeah. for broken down vessels and, and that sort of thing for miles inland all yeah, the way back to the I can, give you, back an to I can give you a direct example of this, Steve. So um, uh, coming from Broadchalk in the Chalk Valley, you go up over the hill and then you run down into Wilton and that road mm -hmm. um, on the edge of the Pembroke Estate is really, really wide and there is one um, old stores hut, sort of Nissan hut, still there. But when I was a kid, there were loads of them all along. And that was a massive depot before D-Day. Yeah. And they widened that road for that. And then they also widened the Salisbury to Bournemouth road. Mm. Completely, yes, all did, the way yeah. down to Romsey and, and beyond. All done in anticipation of D-Day. But, but the New Forest is also full of, sort of concrete hards and stuff, isn't it? It is, for, yeah. So the New for, Forest, yeah. masses of the roads there were improved. Yeah. And the reason today you can get two vehicles going past one another is because they widened them. It yeah. for tanks yeah, specifically yeah. for D-Day a lot of that was done in the spring of 1944 you still wouldn't launch it from Iceland though I mean no, come on no you wouldn't I mean no. you know that wasn't a frivolous unless, point unless perhaps <laughs> Iceland had you know invested in their launching infrastructure significantly <laughs> over the past decade and, and Britain hadn't but the key point really is that all of this innovation is going on from 1942 yeah. onwards and we're preparing ourselves and the success of that is borne out from the 1st of May to the yeah. 5th sorry 1st of June to the 5th of June in that they managed to embark what 150,000 troops and 12,000 or 20,000 vehicles yeah. onto 4,000 amphibious assault vessels in five days yeah, everyone gets onto the right vessel yeah. at the right time they go and berth in the right place so that they're ready to launch the invasion yeah. and you can see the hard now see you see the the grid pattern yes so those are prefabricated concrete beach hardening mats that i They've talk about a, a lot on twitter as well, haven't they, they in, do in yes Portland. that's exactly right chocolate blocks um it was the nickname they were given because they do look like a, a block of chocolate uh so lieutenant colonel vassal steer webster royal engineers came up with that design and that's just your prefabricated concrete block to lay in the intertidal zone and are they literally individual beach. blocks or do they come in in sections uh, they're, of blocks? they're 15 blocks per bar of chocolate if you like so right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> three yeah, by five uh, and you just lay each of those next to each other and, and join them with the, the wires that pass through them. So it's not just the Nazis who understood concrete? No, 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 it's the Royal mm. Engineers. I mean, there's Special so much concrete as well, <laughs> so there's, a, there's <laughs> an extra higher quantity of gravel in that to yeah. give it a higher crushing resistance for the number of vehicles that are going to pass over it. There's all sorts of detail that went into the preparation of these sorts yeah. of places. Well, it always amazes me that, you, you know, everyone always thinks that Lend-Lease was a completely one-way ticket. And, of course, it, it wasn't. You know, 31% of all U.S. supplies in the ETO, European Theatre of Operations, came yeah. from the British. Yeah. And that obviously includes things like this, but, but you know, it's a, it's a significant proportion. Yeah. So, yeah, this, this huge infrastructure improvement around the South Coast is is my thing sadly i'm you know <laughs> this no, I is the thing that i go to the national archives and research but but also it's fascinating to know that you can be innocently you know walking along the edges of gosport and there is yeah a bit of d-day heritage right yeah. before you without yeah. even realizing it yeah. so this one is now a very active boat club as you can see there is yep. a memorial here so this one is sort of better recognized around the corner at Stokes Bay onto the Solent you've got them as well but there are dozens of these that are just hidden along the coast they're yeah. not really recognised for what they are so my my mission if you like is to try and get all of these catalogued and, and that's the research I'm doing at the moment is A to locate them all which I've done uh, but B to record who embarked from them yeah. on what days so that we can catalogue the full extent of the embarkation wow. in this case which nobody's ever done before which yeah. baffles no, it's amazing me. work why has well, nobody it's done that? taken for the, the, the thing so much of, about uh, the Normandy invasion is take, taken for granted it just sort of happens yeah. mm. and, and and so many of the histories are so are absolutely desperate to tell you about the action on the day yeah but this is the this is the action this is the this the, is so Operation Neptune starts on the 26th of May, and yeah. most people think it starts on the 6th of June with the fleet off of the Normandy beaches. Yeah. And you know, there's this whole very significant part of the operation that is just completely 
yeah, not covered, as you say. Yeah, taken, com taken completely for granted. Yeah. But we talked about this before, with, especially with the Navy. It's, it's like the train's running on time. If, it, if your mm. train's late, you complain. If it... If it runs on time, you don't even you don't even notice it. It's it's yeah. got that it's got that aspect to it, hasn't it? Yeah, and, it has. Yeah. And also, you've got it, the other thing that's interesting about it is it's inter-service cooperation that works perfectly that works perfectly well. Yeah. And so what you don't have is, you know, that that picture that sometimes gets painted in the war of everyone butting heads, and of you know the the the, the, the especially the people at Shafe is portrayed mm. as the Air Force just can't get along with the Navy, who can't get along with the Army, and oh, you know. T Tedder hates Monty, whatever. But at this level, which after all isn't, is only one notch below them, isn't it? Yeah, it's all it's all working really, really smoothly. It is, yeah, between the services and between the nations as well. So you mentioned yeah. Castletown, of course, yep. that was an American embarkation. Yeah, yeah, for, for U.S. First so Infantry in, Division. So in March, the U.S. troops arrive, uh, the, the hard personnel who are going to operate that place, and they then need to learn the ropes, learn how to operate this hard, and they learn it from the Royal Navy personnel, the beach personnel, that are, sorry, the hard personnel that are there. And that all goes really well as well. You read the reports and they, they operated and they combined their, their work really efficiently. It was a real great success. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back in a second uh, with more from F8. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James Holland and I are on a landing craft. What's not to like? So what we did then, because uh, the listener was going to have to imagine all this, pictured in their mind's <laughs> eye, we sort of lingered. Um, uh, we didn't quite get down to lowering get, the ramp, did no. we? So what's the pr process? What's the, the, what are the drills? What's the procedure for coming in onto, the, onto a beach and landing, land, getting the people off this? And then, and then obviously the boat buggering off to get more people. So the thing you've got to remember is there's, there's one senior figure on the landing craft, and that's the coxswain. He has overall authority. He is in charge. Um, you, on the landing craft assault, and indeed on these vessels, you have four crew. Coxswain, engineer, and then two leading hands who will do things like operate the ramps um, and you know, attend to the boat. Um, so coming into a beach, your coxswain is going to steer you in. He'll use, um, on here, I think they... They can operate the engines directly from the coxswain's position. On the original LCA in the Second World War, they had uh, telegraphs. So he would communicate from the bow coxswain position with a telegraph to the engineer and say, you know, right. half speed or stop or whatever. He will bring the boat in onto the beach as best as he can. Now that might involve a slow beaching, depending on the, the conditions. He might want to ram it in as fast as possible, depending on what's happening on the beach. If there's a lot happening, they want to get the troops out quickly. Um, and then they need to get the ramp down. So if we, can we walk up to the ramp a little yeah. bit? So the ramp has, uh, the key element really is, is the ramp itself, uh, obviously. Can you see these brackets on the side? So there's this big um, metal yeah. bar that's hooked on to the ramp. So that's called a dog. You have one on each side and that's securing the ramp. So as you're coming towards the beach, one of the leading seamen will remove that dog take the catch off essentially yeah. and that's the safety catch if you like yeah. and then the ramp is supported purely by the cable um, now when you are dropping the ramp all you have to do is let the brake off and can you see there's two wheels yes. at the back yes. in Saving Private Ryan part of the dramatic set is those <laughs> spin around as the ramp is lowering because you've just released the brake that's the winch and so it just spins yeah. you know, anti-clockwise as, as the thing drops down and we should say that those wheels they're on a sort of bulkhead at the back of yeah would you call it a bulkhead yes, yes. yeah that's, that's a definitely a bulkhead yeah. definitely a bulkhead yeah. that's good parlance <laughs> isn't it well done we'll Thank make you. a nautical Thank person you. out of you yet um, so they just drop that you just let the brake off and it just falls basically oh yeah there's water coming in by the ramp here yeah there will be there will be <laughs> right okay yeah, it's um, it's a landing craft, so it yeah, has a, exactly. a seam so, there. I'll but tell you what, Bill, I'm quite impressed by how nimble it is, aren't you? Yeah, but there's there's bugger all wind. We're, in, we're it's very very <laughs> flat here. We've got no swell. I, I'm 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 reserving judgment on its uh, okay on its nimbleness, Jim. I think. <laughs> and we draw we draw what a foot. Yeah, that's that. Right, and it's not it's not got any kind of heat. And here where we are, plate. there's there's nothing underneath us. We're pretty much almost over the air. So the water looks alarming but it's, it's not a problem yeah, it's no. just a bit of spray coming up um, but this isn't watertight it's a very valid point so the LCA had its its ramp but it also had two watertight doors yeah. and that very famous footage from Juno Beach of the soldiers just as they're going in and the, 
comforting pat on the shoulder, that bit of footage. Um, they stood behind the armoured doors, and they're right. watertight doors. They wait for the ramp to go down, then they open then the, they doors. Have the doors. This yeah. one dispenses with that, it's just the ramp. Um, and that's because you've got a vehicle. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, you haven't yeah. got space for the doors, it, yeah. it just doesn't work. Um, but this is armoured. It's high enough above the waterline that it's not going to be leaking incessantly. Yeah. So it doesn't have the same problems as the LCA did. Um, so you get into the beach, you drop the ramp. Um, and then, again, it's Coxon's decision. Now, the troops will probably also automatically leave. But he would normally say troops off or troops out. And they disembark yeah. as quickly as they can. Now, in the LCA, there was a routine. You would empty the central bench first and then the two side benches. Um, and this was all written down. This, this sort of process was all codified in combined operations pamphlets, which of course are for both services, for the Royal Navy and for the infantry. So they know what the rules are for these sorts of vessels. They know each other's drills. So exactly, there's, there's not yeah. gonna be a thing where, where a platoon embarks and they can't talk to each other. So no, everyone's exactly. speaking, literally speaking the they same language. They all know what they're doing, yeah. Right. I mean, even the infantry would have instructions on where the officer should go and, yeah. and that's where the Bren gun should go. And they might adjust that to their own requirements. Um, but, you know, this was all thought out. This was all practiced yeah. uh, to, to a great extent. Obviously, once the door door is down, the mm. ramp's down, you're, and the doors are open, you're exposed to... Anything. I mean, you're exposed yeah. to fire anyway because you're, you're, appro you're approaching a beach and they're going to try and stop you. Yes. I mean, it's... So there's no, there's no particular place that's more dangerous or less dangerous, is there? No, so once the ramp is down, you want to be off of this boat as yeah. quickly as possible. We've all seen Saving Private Ryan, and we can debate the accuracy of that yeah. endlessly. But yeah, you, you want off the boat, basically. And usually your three sections will split. One goes ahead, one on each side. Um, but yeah, once, once you're on the beach, there's no protection left in this anymore. And, but that's its job. Its job yeah. is to get you there onto the beach, and then it has to leave. So... They and shuffle back and do it again. Exactly. So they start winching off with the kedge anchor. They will then hand winch the ramp up yeah. um, using the wheel again at the back. Now, today they've got a motor fitted. Um, yeah. You know, because why not? But they didn't <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. 1940s. They didn't in the 1940s and they didn't in the Falklands War either. This was a hand operated ramp. So they'd have to winch it up and then the seaman again would put the, the dogs on to, to latch it into place to make it secure and off they go. Because the, the cable isn't going to support the weight for a prolonged period of time, right, especially sure. in rough seas. Right, you, you'll strip the gears, won't you? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Steve, uh, I mean, talking about the Falklands, I mean, do, do we, we know the heritage of this particular vessel, do we? Yes, we do. So F-8 was um, Foxtrot 8, and she was one of eight landing craft assigned to HMS Fearless. Now, Fearless sailed um, with the amphibious assault group for the Falklands War. She actually sailed from just there, Fountain Jetty, where those two warships are moored now. Um, and she came out of the harbour, supported by some of her landing craft alongside her. She was a dedicated amphibious assault vessel. So, like I said, she evolved from the landing ship dock, and yep. she was classified as a landing platform dock. James? Oh, the HMS Victory over there. Yeah. <laughs> um, much older vessel. <laughs> We've moved on. <laughs> Victory is looking pretty good not resplendent without her masts yeah. I, I would say but you know she's she's going through a massive restoration she's going to look good at the end of it I yeah think. it's going to be it's a few more years but you know we, we will eventually get back to her looking like she did which is going to be great i think yeah. not really my era i'm afraid and yeah. <laughs> it's not really mine <laughs> either but, but you know i do love a bit of napoleonic war i must say oh absolutely i'd do anything to go and have dinner on in nelson's cabin i, I gave an after dinner speech on victory did you? Yeah. Okay, I've got, I've got, I've got victory envy. <laughs> I was filming there the other day. No, all right, go on then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we win that, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, 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 so, anyway, so anyway. fearless, fearless is is designed for amphibious assault. Exactly. So she has a an internal dock. So she is literally a floating dock. Um, right. So she can lower herself in the water to flood her rear dock area and open the back door, and the landing craft can come out the back. And right. then when she's at sea, she pumps all the water out, raises the dock level above sea level, and she's just a normal ship. Wow. So she carried four landing craft utility, which are essentially the evolution of the landing craft tank. So they're much bigger. They lived in the floating dock. And she carried four LCVPs. So F4, oh, sorry, F5, F6, F7, and F8, this one, which were carried in the davits on the sides of the boat. So they're, they're winched And does she accommodate the, the troops as well? Yes, yeah, so she could accommodate roughly a battalion of, of men, right. um, which is roughly what the landing craft are capable of carrying. Yeah. You know, a, a battalion or a troop of, of commando. 
Um, so when she sailed, she actually carried a mix of units because she was going to be the amphibious assault group's headquarters ship. Um, and uh, she had some of the, uh, is it the blues and greys, one of the armoured units, uh, of course, were transported. Their tanks could fit into the dock. Yeah. Um, they had a bit of a reshuffle before they landed at the Falklands. They realised they needed to get some of the troops off of the larger vessels. Um, so I think it was Canberra that went in, um, the Norland ferry. Yeah. These were all carrying bit too many men for, for comfort so they, they did a well yes because after the exocet strikes they're starting exactly. to worry about that they're having all their eggs in the one basket exactly it? Yeah. after atlantic conveyor in particular so they did a an at sea transfer of 40 commando yeah from their truck their troop transport ship onto hms fearless which is no mean it's, yeah it's quite a task to do that at sea using the landing craft utility well they, they achieved it uh then on the night of the 20th of may they creep into falkland sound um, and then F-8 and her sister ships takes 40 commando uh, from, from the, the hold, if you like, and pretty much the entire unit. And they follow the landing craft of HMS uh, Intrepid. So same boat, sister yeah. ship. Um, was it Intrepid? I'm sure it was Intrepid. I hope it was Intrepid. <laughs> <laughs> um, Intrepid's landing craft lead, um, and then uh, Fearless's follow. So we, we can... I have the, the memoirs of the, the head landing craft officer, uh, Major Ewan Sutherby Taylor, who had previously, in fact, he'd commanded the, the Royal Marines garrison at the Falkland Islands in the late 70s. And while he was there, he'd sailed all around the Falklands. Yeah. He'd mapped the place. This is pre-Google Maps. Nobody yeah. has any idea what the Falklands are like. So his knowledge was incredibly useful. Because he'd sailed around, he knew where all the beaches were. He was also an ex-landing sort of craft officer, so he knew the capabilities. So his his research of a few years previous was absolutely vital. It's fortunate, isn't it? Very fortunate. So he became the inshore navigation officer for the amphibious assault fleet. And he led the landing craft in, and he said he led them in number order, just for ease of, you know, for simplicity. Tango 4, one of Intrepid's boats, was left behind because there was a bit of an accident. A trooper crushed his pelvis getting off of the, the Norland ferry. Uh, he was okay but he was injured so yeah. tango 4 was a bit behind so she was the final vessel so f8 must have been 15th out of the 16th landing craft sailing yeah. into san carlos water uh, and then she they get to their beaches and they they drop their troops off and then as james said they literally turn around and they go and they do it all again they start picking up more troops fearless then actually her landing craft went back to intrepid and picked up their troops which right. were free power i think yeah and then takes them into san carlos water um so it's they then enter this period of constant shuttling service going back and forth uh loading sorry unloading more troops onto the beaches to build them up in, in san carlos bay and how often i mean how many trips to refuel or do they refuel each time they stop in to collect more people it was a fairly short distance in um inside San Carlos water once Fearless and, and Intrepid were docked. So they didn't have too far to go. So I, I doubt they needed to refuel every time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all the fuel, everything they need is carried in their dock ships. So they've got everything they want. And we're just steering into a marina here. I'm not sure if Diggory, oh yes, Diggory is planning on showing off something. <laughs> well, there's a there's a there's a yacht here called Overlord as a sort of oh, wow, uh, oh, look yeah. at that bit of oh, a I reminder. That no, that's, that's very good. That's not why we're here. It's <laughs> a beautiful looking yacht. So dead ahead of us, can you see the grey boat over yes. there? ML thirteen eighty seven. So that's a harbour defence motor launch, uh, and this is another coastal forces boat. So she's another wonderful Second World War boat, preserved by the HMS Medusa Trust. And oh, their skipper brilliant. Alan Watson is an absolutely lovely guy. This is essentially a time capsule. So MGB-81 that we saw earlier, she was um, turned into a houseboat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heavily modified. Uh, 1387 was kept in Royal Navy service after the end of the war as a um, survey vessel and given the name Medusa, yeah. HMS Medusa. Uh, and so she's never been modified. She is a genuine time capsule. She has everything on her from the... Second How World War era. And she wow. was a navigation vessel on D-Day. She marked the assault channel to Omaha Beach. Wow. That is properly good. So I think, yeah, one day we'll have to get you back down here and, and have a good look over her. And her skipper, Alan Watson, is a, an absolutely lovely guy. Incredible. Um, How amazing. She is a fantastic guy. I've been on her at sea. I've disgraced myself. I puked over the stern. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, we should inform the listener that there's been no... Um, 
uh, mal de mer yet on this uh, on this excursion. No, our sea legs have been pretty good, haven't they? Yeah, see, well, we yeah, are in the harbour. Really We've it's been in harbour, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to boast. I'm I went out boast. in a rolling sea and we had to keep stopping to film. Oh, God. Um, and I was reading passages from a book on oh, the bow. No. Um, that was, we were in the same programme for that, James. It was um, Dunkirk, The Forgotten Heroes. Oh, right. Yeah. Don't remember the I always <laughs> that one. I used to find a packet of rich tea biscuits stopped me being seasick. Uh, okay. Just chugging, chugging rich tea or ginger nuts. Some people say uh, ginger. Yeah, yeah. Ginger is supposed to be very good for you. Yeah. Doesn't work for me. Oh, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I've tried many things. The I've, agony of it. Well, that's right wonderful seeing me juice, though. That's incredible. So she's a lovely class of vessel. The Harbour Defence Motor Launch, again, built in boatyards up and down the country, designed by... Um, the uh, the Admiralty's sort of construction department. I forget. So how many the of those name. were built then? Uh, about four hundred. Wow. And there's quite a few survivors. There's quite a few down in Australia and New Zealand actually. Really? Um, but in this country, she's the only one that actually is still operational. There is a boat up in um, near Liverpool uh, that was converted into a, a yacht called Surinda after the war. And recently, she's been bought by a family who are, are now doing her up. And you can follow all of that on YouTube. I think it's called Ship Happens. Um, it's uh, quite now, an interesting story of restoration. Numbers is one of the things that's really uh, uh, boggling when we when we start to talk about, you know, the the Allied naval effort. How many LCAs are built? So the 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 rough count is about two thousand. Right. By the end of the war, they've lost about five hundred. Yeah, so how many? Yes, that's the other thing I was going to ask. How many LCAs are lost on D-Day on the sixth? Oh. Not many. Uh, well, the LCA was the most numerous single type of vessel present at D-Day um, yeah. in the assault wave. So there were just shy of 500 of them. They were split across all the task forces for each beach. So they even had them at Omaha and, Juno, uh, yeah. and Utah. Yeah. Well, yes, because um, some, so, some of the Omaha component is Royal Naval yes. people. Go, they've, once they've dropped off at Sword or Gold or wherever, they then... No, no, no. So, no, it was Royal Navy vessels sailing with Force O and right, Force right, U. Right, right. Um, and you know, the Rangers, uh, the, the unit that um, yes. Tom Hanks is based on for Saving Private Ryan, he's based on Captain Goranson from the US Rangers, um, they landed from LCAs. Right, right. Um, so it's kind of, you know, serendipity that they then film it on a, an LCA Mark yeah. II. <laughs> There's 4,127 landing craft on D Day, right. involved in D Day. A hell of a lot. It is, yeah, and that's from the very smallest vessels all the way up to the big landing yeah. ships. Um, and yeah, the most numerous single type in the assault waves is the LCA, so just shy of 500. Later on and into the next day, all of the ferry service starts yeah. arrive. They sailed direct from the UK themselves, and that includes more of the Higgins boats. So by the end of D-Day, the, the Higgins boat has become the most numerous. Yeah. But for the assault wave, really is the humble LCA, which is why it's such a pity that there aren't any survivors yeah, 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 in yeah, the country yeah. anywhere. Um, I've yet to find that. There's a houseboat somewhere that I, I don't know, maybe I'll try and buy it one that day. That is terrible, <laughs> actually, isn't it? Why isn't there? The, I mean, so there, there did used to be a few. There's a couple of wrecked ones around Portsmouth yeah. Harbour um, that were disposed of after the war in estuaries up and down the south coast. Um, there was one outside the museum in Aramanche. There was one outside the museum at Utah. Um, but they were both broken up because they were starting to become dilapidated. They were left outside. Um, so there's, there's no preserved one left today, unfortunately. That's terrible, isn't so it? So this really? is the closest shame. you can get. Um, which is why this boat is wonderful on so many accounts. It's not just Falklands War, but it carries the heritage of yeah. the Second World War as well. Yeah. So we're manoeuvring into another sort of corner of Gosport. Um, so over there, uh, the Submarine Museum. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And HMS Alliance. HMS I've, Alliance. I've, I've filmed there we go. Yeah. <laughs> HMS Alliance, um, Second World War land, uh, submarine, which was then modified in the Cold War. So she, she has a very distinct Cold War look to her. But originally, when launched, she, she looks like the sort of classic Royal Navy submarine. Yeah. Um, and we're going up water towards a place called HMS Hornet at Haslar. This was the main coastal forces base in the Second World War. So this is where yes. 81 was based for a while. Uh, and other boats like Medusa that we just saw would have been berthed here as well. I mean, really, we're just having a good look around to show you lots of the sort of Second World War heritage of the harbour, rather than take you out to sea. Because if we go outside the harbour, then then it gets a bit lumpier. Yeah. <laughs> then I think we'd start complaining. I, one of the one of the things that just struck me is, you know, we're in we're in this this is a marina now, mm. and there's you know there's hundreds of pleasure boats. Would it be have been of bustling with naval? You know, would it all be grey vessels in here? Yeah. 
So pretty much where all of these boats are moored up, these are all mooring trots for, for yeah. coastal forces, vessels, MTBs, motor launches, harbour defence motor launches, steam gunboats. And then you'll have all of the, the small boats, landing craft were moored around here as well. Then all of the ship's boats, trot boats, that sort of thing. So this was bustling, as bustling as it is today. Yeah. But just like you say, everything would have been grey or, or white and blue-grey as the camouflage evolved yeah. later on in the war. It um, is amazing, isn't it? Because, you, you, you know, this is the bit that you don't really think about. One yeah. doesn't really think about. Yeah. Landing craft, coastal forces. Mm. You know, so many vessels, all those victuallers. Yeah. But just as you've but just as you've talked about how you have to have that you know, the big weak air battle to clear the skies. Yeah. To, to to enable, you know, so you've got fighter cover for D-Day and strike cover. You can you can use your strike aircraft, strategic bombers as well. That's already had to happen in the naval sense. Yes. Yep. So they had to clear the channel especially in early 1944, to secure the channel so that they can operate in it without threat. And, and they do that very successfully. And that's due to coastal forces and Royal Navy destroyers, primarily, regularly engaging German forces. April 1944, the, the Germans send over their S-boats 12 times. Yeah. Um, and 11 times they have absolutely zero success. Either the weather or our own forces turn them back and they're unable to intercept convoys. Because the one incident that everyone remembers is yeah, the slap 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 exercise Tiger. And they intercept and sink a couple of LSTs there. So everyone's heard of that. They, they don't hear about the fact that 11 times our forces managed to force the S-boats back to their own yeah. harbours without any success at all. Um, but that's, that's all the Germans have really got, though, is, is the S-boats. Yeah, it, it, and uh, other uh, small vessels. They, they had their destroyers and their torpedo boats. Yeah. Which and they've got those little midget submarines that they've got. They've yeah, got they, they only deploy those in the English Channel after D-Day. But yes, they only have these small but units, the, like you say. Niger, but they don't have a main effort that they can that they can use in the channel by this by this time. No, it, no. it's nibbling. It's it's small raids and attacks and that sort of And then of there's thing. all the mine clearing which is going on, which is just legion. Yes. Mine laying, mine, leer, mine clearing, and the, the the mine clearing operation on the night of D-Day is just absolutely outstanding. Was it 242 minesweepers? Yeah, I, I can't remember. Together, off the top you know, of to my create head, these channels, the, the, the vegetables has to go. And again, all types of different vessels, from the smallest motor launches that are leading them, uh, and then you have the BYMS uh, minesweepers, and then the fleet minesweepers that are ahead of the, the main amphibious Well, it's the thing that gives and Ramsey the biggest headache of all, isn't it? Is the um, is the mine Just going to describe yeah. to the listener: we've li we've literally turned uh, 180 degrees within the length of the boat, <laughs> so she can turn literally on on yeah, her on her, on her backside, can't she? So landing craft of this size are incredibly manoeuvrable because they need to be. Balance that in the Second World War against something like a landing craft tank, which isn't manoeuvrable in the slightest. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, steers its own course if you don't try and control it. Um, but these small ones, like you say, being such shallow draft, they, they really can manoeuvre quite yeah. well. And you know, they're, they're very well designed. Landing craft don't look much. It's like this, they have the nickname cigar boxes. Yeah. Understandably, if you look at them. Um, but they, they really are highly effective vessels. And I would argue that the, the Royal Navy's landing craft was some of the, the most successful designs of the entire war. And I'm talking about better than the American ones. Right. Wow. So over there, HMS Hornet. Um, so this was the, ah, the, the sort of headquarters, if you like, for the Coastal Forces units here. So there's accommodation there for the crews. These main marinas were... Absolutely packed with, with yeah. motor torpedo boats and stuff. This is where they were all operating from. So all the staffs are based here, that kind of thing. Uh, and then they would literally sail out of here to turn right into the channel and and over to France. So this, like you said, James, this is a real, uh, sorry, a real hive of activity yeah. in, in 1944. I think I think being a you know skipper on a motor torpedo boat or motor gunboat would be quite, quite good, don't you, in a war? Well, all, I mean, all the things you could do where you kind of, you know, Earning your spurs, but well, the, I mean, how, how how dangerous is it? It's very dangerous. You're right. It, the thing about coastal forces was most of their skippers were Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, yeah, because they're small vessels. All of the Royal Navy officers are quickly being accelerated up to command the growing fleet of destroyers and escort ships and that sort of thing. So it's the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve officers who come into here, and you get command at the rank of lieutenant or sub lieutenant even yeah. of a vessel with a crew, actual command at such a low rank, which you would never get on a, a destroyer or a battleship. So 
you know, this is a, a way to, like you say, get your own ship, essentially. Mm. And, and they were very highly sought after. A lot of people wanted to, to command MTBs and, and MGBs um, and were very good at it. But it was incredibly dangerous because they are made of wood. There's very little armor plating and they all have petrol engines, uh, which are very highly flammable. Yes. <laughs> um, so casualties amongst coastal forces were, were relatively high. Were they? But okay. so were their success rates. Um, they, you know, they were very effective at intercepting enemy vessels running along their own coast, the, the enemy coastal convoys, and the motor gunboats became very effective at stopping the German e-boats and, and turning them around and protecting our own coastal convoys. So how convoys. do they, I mean, you know, man for man, how does, a, how does an MGB compare with an S-boat? So an MGB is a little bit shorter, it's about 70 foot for the 81, it's actually 71 foot and 9 inches. Um, you've got 12 crew, usually, two officers and 10 men, you know, manning the guns and the engines. An S-boat has a crew a bit larger, 20. The vessel is a bit longer, so about 110 foot. They both can achieve similar speeds, um, about 40 knots. The S-boats are a little bit faster. They're a bit better in rough weather because they have a traditional bilge hull. They've just got very powerful engines and they can go very fast. Whereas our motor torpedo boats had a planing hull, so it's almost a flat bottom at yeah. the stern, which is great for planing and skimming across the water. In water like this, it's great. Anything worse than a Force 4 and you're bouncing off of the yeah, waves, you're really wrecking the hull yeah. and you're, you're, yeah, your crew are not at their best. Um, so the, the S-boats were a little bit better at sea keeping, um, but they rolled more because they were a bilge, uh, sorry, a, a typical round bilge hull. Um, so they weren't as good a gun platform, uh, which is something that some of the officers observed, Royal Navy officers who rode in S-boats after the war observed. And so, right. oh, that's why they could never shoot straight. Um, <laughs> but Steve, I mean, you, you know, you're saying that our, our coastal forces are seeing off the S-boats. I mean, how, how, what's, what's the, I mean, how do you do that? How do you see off an S-boat? So early in the war, of course, we, we didn't have a particularly big coastal forces fleet. We had motor torpedo boats who have torpedoes uh, and some machine guns for anti-aircraft defence. We anticipated that our biggest threat was going to be from submarines again, just like it had been in the First World War, when the, the German Navy is sending lots of small inshore U-boats around to torpedo our coastal vessels. And, um, so we equipped for that with motor anti-submarine boats, which are motor torpedo boats, just get rid of the torpedoes and put depth charges on instead. Yeah. Um, very early on, Germany captures all of Europe, uh, so they have the entire Atlantic coast to play with, and their U-boats don't have to come around Britain, they can go straight into the Atlantic from France and their S-boats are in range of our waters, so they can launch from Zeebrugge, Ostend, yeah. Calais, Cherbourg, and attack our coastal convoys with those boats rather than submarines. And we're not prepared for S-boats, we haven't got anything to counter them with, because you can't torpedo a 40-knot boat, no. you'll never manage to hit it, and it's such shallow draft that arguably the torpedo would go underneath anyway. So we don't have a boat to counter them, um, and we don't need the motor anti-submarine boats because we're not facing uh, submarines. So what they did very quickly and early on in 1940 and 1941 is start stripping the depth charges off of the motor anti-submarine boats and equipping them with guns, mainly heavy caliber anti-aircraft guns, so 0.5 Vickers, um, 20 millimeter Orlikans, yeah, and turning them into motor gunboats, quite literally. And by the time you get to 81, they're putting a a two-pounder pom-pom 40-millimeter gun right. on the bow, which is, again, an anti-aircraft gun, but it's ideal for small ship warfare. And the idea is that these well-gunned vessels will be able to engage the S-boats more on their own terms. The problem was, we pretty much abandoned coastal forces between the wars, the coastal motorboats were all sold off, so we didn't have anyone who was trained in these boats, and there was no idea of, you know, tactics. What do you yeah. do with it? So they had to learn the tactics themselves. And it was uh, one of the most famous officers was Robert Hitchens, who was Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. And he worked out the tactics um, by practice and experiment, basically. And, and he told them, this is how I want to try it. And they experimented with laying in wait for S-boats near the convoys. Um, but then the, the tactic they hit upon best was to go into the middle of the North Sea find out which convoys the Germans were attacking from radio traffic and then intercept them on their way back. Right. And that's how they made the first interceptions between our gunboats and the S-boats. And as they got their, their eye in and they got better at it, the next tactic was to go across to the enemy-held ports, Zeebrugge and uh, those sorts of places, early in the evening. 
um, before the S-boats have sailed and try and intercept them before they get a chance to actually leave their coast. So they right. you lie in wait off of their harbours, the boats come out and you attack them straight away. And that was very successful uh, and it, it worked. That's ballsy. Yeah. It's very ballsy, but it worked because very early on, by 1943, the S-boats are not engaging in combat with our motor gunboats if they can avoid it. And in 1944, April, motor gunboat 81 ahead of us, she gets involved in an action a couple of nights before Exercise Tiger. Uh, two boats, 81 and a sister ship. By now they'd been repenanted as motor torpedo boats, but without torpedoes, but that's, that's irrelevant. They intercept five German S-boats right. at night, and the S-boats oh. just leg it. They, they're not hanging around, they're not going to engage in combat, even if it's just with two motor gunboats. They, straight, their first reaction is just to leave. Now, primarily, of course, they've got a mission which is to engage merchant ships and, and landing ships. They, they've got bigger targets. They don't want to mix it with the motor gunboats. But the dominance of the motor gunboats by then is such that the, you know, the, the Kriegsmarine would just rather not actually engage our motor gunboats at all. So you've kind of got a sea supremacy thing exactly, like, like yeah. air super supremacy. That's exactly what we were trying to win in the channel yeah. in 44, so exactly, yeah. It's, it's numbers, it's tactics. It's, it's aggression um, by the sound of it. It is, I mean, it's aggression, And also, yeah. also that thing, and again it reminds me of Big Week, of creating encounters mm. uh, with the enemy so yeah. that you defeat, you defeat the enemy or deter him. Yes. Uh, uh, r rather, than, rather than actually um, interdicting him when he's doing the thing he's trying to do, yeah. you, you create encounters with him that stop, stop him from doing yeah. that. Don't let yeah, him no, yeah, and that's also that the same as the destroyers and the U-boats, isn't yeah. it, in the Atlantic? Yes, same yeah, exactly. And that's, that's pretty much the Royal Navy's strategy throughout the war in, in many respects, is you know, get them to play our game. Yeah. Rather, and you know, early on, of course, we need to play their game because we're the weaker force, yeah. they have a, a more dominant position, but very quickly, 42-43, we turn the tables on them. And, and yeah, we're very quickly operating against the S-boats offensively rather than defensively. I've got to say, it does look fantastic. We're, we're just coming back into the jetties now. Yeah, but everything here looks fantastic. Yeah, I know, I mean, but, that, but, but... Warrior is so, like, insanely cool. But don't you think that <laughs> MGB looks cool? Oh, I'm not... Oh, I'm 100%. It, I mean, it, so look at it, it just looks yeah. sleek well and mean. Well-armed, sleek, and mean gunboat. And that's why they acquired the nickname Spitfires of the Sea. Which of course is my moniker on um, on Twitter. Right, the ramp's, oh, going, the ramp's down, going down, everybody. Down. That's really good. <laughs> okay, that's fantastic. See the wheel spinning oh, at yeah. the back. Wheel spinning because the brake has go. essentially been let off. But this is a controlled lowering using the the, the engine. Look at that. That's very good. So this is where we all do our, you know, <laughs> cruciforms. Yeah, yeah, good luck. Good luck, Tommy. <laughs> See you in Berlin. That. that. So one of the things that you don't get a sense of in Saving Private Ryan, um, when they're, they're going into the beach and they're all talking to each other, um, Tom Sizemore, is it, the, the sergeant? Yes. Um, he, he sort of wanders the length of the boat, telling people don't bunch up and that sort of thing. That is physically impossible in a fully loaded landing craft. Yeah, yeah, you you yeah. can't just stroll down the middle of the boat. You are literally packed in. And that was one of the problems with the LCVP, the, the US Higgins boat, is you can't sit down, you're stood up. Eight miles they have to go inshore. Yeah. And you know, by the end of it, they're all pretty sick. Whereas on the Royal Navy landing craft assault, they've been sat on benches. You're dead on your feet if you've Good. been standing up. Exactly, yeah. for an hour. Yeah. Um, in rough seas, you know, balancing, kit. nothing to lean against except yeah. the person next to you who's, who's heaving his guts up. That's so brilliant. I didn't bring my wellies. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Shouldn't need them. So don't disembark until you're told by the skipper, remember? Yeah, oh, remember. Because yeah. the, the ramp, Coxon's of course, needs to get onto a firm bedding. And there you can hear it grinding. <laughs> Follow me, men. <laughs> <laughs> We did it. Yes, we did it. We're, we're on dry land. We're ashore. To the gift shop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't say that. That's well, just ruined the whole thing. Storm the gift shop Do we first. want to get back on? Yeah, because I think all our bags <laughs> are on. Because all our kit is still on there. <laughs> well, we... No, I think, I think they're leaving us. <laughs> we, we can walk around and get it, can't we? I mean, it's just around the corner. We can walk around. Um, but this is your opportunity to see it actually pull away as yep. well, so you get a good idea of the scale of the ramp. Um, 
So this is this is what's absolutely brilliant about restoring vessels like this. You know, the public can now come down and see this, and they can see how yep. a landing craft works, and they can actually go out and enjoy a harbour tour as well. And it's not just the, the vessel itself, which is brilliant, and you can spend your entire time just looking at the deck, but also you get a good tour of Portsmouth Harbour um, from sea level. Well, how interesting this has been. It's just been it's incredible. So when when is this... Uh, oh, that We're just popping our way backwards. <laughs> When's this open to the public then? Um, so it's all COVID reliant, but hopefully yeah. later this month. Um, but for the rest of the summer, you'll be able to go out on this. Um, so you can charter it as a group. Uh, I think they're hoping to do, you know, walk-ons if you like, with um, yeah. with single people all coming on a in a larger group, so a small harbour tour if you like. But you could charter it as a group as well if yeah. you wanted, and and to various different levels of going around the harbour. Yeah. Um, so you know. It's, it's definitely a, a really novel way to appreciate the dockyard. I would, I would highly recommend it to any of our, any of our listeners. I would too. It's absolutely yeah. fabulous. Yeah. And there is, it, it, I mean, it's as near as damn it is the, is the thing, isn't it? And yep. also, it but is. also the, Falkland, the Falklands heritage. I'm sure many, many, many of our listeners remember the Falklands War pretty well. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a reminder though, isn't it? That the, the, the Falkland Wars are, is on that sort of, that, that tipping point, isn't it, between the Second World War era and the modern yeah. era? Well, yeah. what's interesting is that Falklands War 39 years ago, um, but when the Falklands happened, that's 38 years yeah. after D-Day. So Falklands is now closer to D-Day than it is to today. Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting is how many things were very similar about it as well, because right. the, the, the technology is, is not dissimilar to D-Day, as we've just seen on this yeah. vessel. And, but also the amphibious operation, the nature of the, the landings in San Carlos, again, are very similar. They're going into a largely unknown place. Like I yeah. said, no Google Maps, no way of knowing what the terrain is like, the beaches. If it wasn't for Ewan Sotheby Taylor's extensive notes of sailing around, they wouldn't have known where they could even beach yeah. in the Falklands. So it's thanks to his notes that they could pick somewhere that has all the right aspects of good anchorage, good defensive yeah. locations, and has the beaches for the landing craft to use. Uh, so that's why they picked San Carlos Bay. Um, and then establish that beachhead and then operate from it. It's all very, very similar to Normandy. And the process, the evolutions and the training and the practice they went through is, is like D-Day on a smaller scale. Yeah, 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 yeah. And drawing on an awful lot of experience and uh, uh, sort of, I mean, the, after all, the Marines, the Marines have been, commanders have been training as amphibious troops anyway so they yes. but the paras haven't no so they've all got the, <laughs> i mean the opposite they've got they've got to learn it they've got to f uh, work out how to do it exactly on the job yeah as well. they have to go through the, the practice of disembarking from their ferries yeah. into the landing craft as well and they did practice that at ascension island because they have no idea and that as i've talked about with the embarkation hards just getting that detail right yeah. is vital especially because the landings were conducted very early hours of the morning trying to do it in darkness to, yeah. to capture the enemy unawares. To do that on time, you need to make sure that the troops can actually get off the vessel yeah, they know quickly what they're doing. enough yeah, and yeah, they know yeah. what they're doing. So, you know, it, it's, it requires an awful lot of organisation before you get to the beach. Yeah. God, Diggory knows how to handle this, doesn't he? Oh, uh, yeah, but people who can work boats are essentially the most amazing, must have the most amazing physics going on in their head. Because it's the inertia and it's the current and the, mm. you know, the actually how much throttle. Because uh, you know when I, I, we used to so go the sailing. room here is zero, isn't I it? I know, but but he just knows. He yeah. just He knows how much, and you know you never give it too much, do you? On the and he's working with two engines, so he's he's feathering the propellers at different speeds and working the rudders yeah. at the same time. I mean, when I work, um, probably good. I work on small expedition cruise vessels when there's not a global pandemic, and I operate the Zodiac boats, you know, the, the ribs, and they just have a single engine at the back and you just move your arm around yeah. to control it. I can manage that, but the thought of, you know, multiple engines and rudders and, and speeds and stuff, it's terrifying. That's nah, brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Ah. Well, this has been fantastic. It's, it? it's been uh, brilliant. Stunned Thank silence you, from you both. Yes, oh, I know you actually, We've done yeah, well. Yeah, you, we, we, <laughs> I'll turn you into a nautical podcast. Yeah, this is all part of my, <laughs> my great master plan to get you to cover the Navy a little bit Well, I'm bit not going to lie. I've got my eye on your motor gunboat. <laughs> yeah. You know. I'll come back for that. that. Yeah. See, that's I mean, the thing is we, there's, there's no more a different vessel between a motor gunboat and a landing craft. But I'm yeah, sure she is a fantastic one. It's, 
and it's just it's so interesting you know talking about these things that people don't ever talk about yeah i think that's what's so brilliant but you could you could write a history of of d-day without actually bothering june the 6th couldn't you you could so I'm I'm working on that. So all of that research that I, I told you about the embarkation and stuff, hopefully, sort of exclusive for you, um, will be a book next year. Brilliant. So Brilliant. in a way, it's to stop people from bothering me on Twitter and saying, so where did this landing craft leave from? <laughs> yes, I'm more than that. happy to ask sorry, those questions. Sorry. I don't mind at all. But um, one of the things that you know becomes evident when you start looking at landing craft as much as I do is there's no book to turn to to give yeah. you this information. So if you want to know where LCT 555 sailed from and who she carried, you have to go to the National Archives and look at about six different documents to piece together all of the, the orders and numbers that she was assigned. So my plan is to put that into a book and, and finally we'll be able to say who left from where because you know these embarkation huts are fascinating archaeological sites but they're also you know they're memorials in their own right yeah. because this is the last place that many people were in ground we're or in england yeah yep. you know mm. uh, uh, went abroad and some and, of them and never, never even back. got ashore this is yeah. the last time they're actually touching solid earth yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. before they leave so I've, i want to turn that into a publication so that people can you know, find out where all these units left from, which vessels they got onto, where they sailed to, where they berthed, and and that kind of thing. It'll be a you know a fascinatingly boring book, but um, I think it'll be a useful reference book for for future reference. Absolutely. No, well, hats off, Steve. I mean, yeah. that's it's a hell of a lot of work you've been putting into this. <laughs> it it and, is um, a lot of work. Yes. I mean, very important work too. <laughs> thank you. Well, and thank you so much for. Um for this trip this morning it's been brilliant yeah. well the, yeah. the people to think of Boathouse 4 and the team and, and Diggory Rose the skipper yeah. and Dave who's been our um, our sort of other hand on the boat if you like leading hand um, and yeah they they run a really great boat building school and they, they do a great job operating these boats maintaining them and preserving them and it's great that people can come and see them even if you can't go on board you can see the boats you can see them from Warrior and, and stuff and you know they deserve massive kudos yeah. uh, for, for the work they do in keeping this sort of heritage afloat brilliant well that's it for um, F8 I think but we too. have more well, we have loads more to come uh, thanks for listening uh, there'll be more we are in increasingly nautical uh, today <laughs> we, we? Ha yeah, we have ways, ways of nautically you making you talk yeah, absolutely or making you talk nautically Nord Either will do, whatever. <laughs> um, thanks for listening, everyone. We will see you soon. And thanks again, Steve. Thank Cheerio. you very much. Bye.